in my practice, I did a lot of herbal and I did a lot of acupuncture and I kind of let the nutritional end of it slide a little bit. And I realized you can't do that. You have to take the whole picture. And what I found is a lot of people would come in and the minute I'd mentioned diet, they were tense. I just say, I'm going to educate you in the foods you eat. So you know that if you're going to make a choice, what choice would be better? You make the choice or not. Little changes, whatever changes they need, need to be long-term changes. It's not just about while I'm sick. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. It is the rare individual whose spirit shines with luminous brilliance. My guest is one of these unique, connected beings, and her energy lights up this podcast. Deirdre Courtney's relationship to spirit is integral to her existence and the healing process that she crafts for her patients. Deirdre's journey as a practitioner began with a passion for food and cooking. She soon learned that she could help people recover from many conditions, including addictions, through nutrition alone, and that led her to study traditional Chinese food therapy. Eventually, she earned a master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine and today has a thriving practice in South Dublin, specializing in face reading and cosmetic acupuncture. Deirdre has always sensed subtle energies that others seem oblivious to. She is able to read the health of spirit within her patients using their eyes as portals. This enables her to impact them well beyond the physical into the psycho-spiritual realms. Spirit is not all we talk about in this episode. We discuss her cosmetic acupuncture strategies, including addressing emotional trauma that is carved into the face like a map. She takes us through the process of writing her book, Nourishing Life, The Yangsheng Wei, and we look at the culture of Chinese medicine and the conflict of sacred in Ireland. Deirdre has been working with renowned face reader Lillian Bridges for more than 20 years and is the educational director of the Lotus Institute in Seattle. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Deirdre Courtney. Deirdre, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure to invite you, and I want to acknowledge our mutual colleague and friend, Lillian Bridges, who originally suggested that I connect with you. So thank you, Lillian, for doing that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> she is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you are multi-talented from my perspective, and maybe we can begin with your relationship to food and cooking and being a chef, because I know you've been a chef for in many different places for many different people, including the rich and famous, and you've also used food in helping people to heal from things such as addiction. Yeah. Um, well, I started um, when I was very young. I got very interested in um, just the natural approach to things. And so I started to grow herbs in my own garden and started to use culinary herbs for um, for um, health. And, you know, like dandruff, I, I, I learned parsley was good if you make a tea. So that kind of stimulated my 
my um, interest in herbs and food and using food as a medicine. And then when I was um, in my teens, I got a chesty cough infection and the doctor I used to go to was very open-minded and I, he wanted to put me on an antibiotic, but he said, I had told him that I was interested in the nutrition and that I heard dairy can create mucus and therefore could be compounding my problem. So he, um, he said, okay, give up dairy and see how you feel. And within a week, all of it was cleared up. So that kind of led me to then going into learning about food and starting to learn to cook. And um, I started working in kitchens here in Ireland, uh, washing dishes and then making salads and worked my way up um, until I went to America and um, I got a job working for one of the Beach Boys, for Brian Wilson. And he was recovering from years of drug and alcohol abuse and had been very overweight. But when I arrived there, he was much fitter. He was swimming every day, he was exercising. So I was maintaining a healthy diet. So um, I worked in a lot of vegetarian restaurants before that. I worked in a macrobiotic restaurant and um, I was part of a macrobiotic society in Los Angeles when I went there to learn more about it so I could, you know, use that information working with Brian. And um, I kind of knew a lot of stuff and people used to ask my advice all the time, but I was always self-taught. So I wanted to learn um, about food and nutrition. And I really was interested in the Asian's approach, a Asian medicines, medicines approach to it. So um, I investigated and found out that um, there was a new college opening up in Los Angeles, Yosan University. And that because um, it was a new college, um, I could possibly get in there not being uh, a resident. I was sort of became a resident then. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to do Chinese nutrition, but because it was a school of Chinese medicine, I had to do acupuncture alongside it and herbal medicine. And so it just completely changed everything because I hadn't planned on doing acupuncture or any of these other things. I just wanted to learn Chinese nutrition and I didn't want to be a conventional dietitian because I didn't like the Western approach to health. So yeah, so um, I was working full time while I was in college and um, I was, I used to do a lot of catering and I used to go to um, a lot of wealthy people in Los Angeles. I used to go to their homes and I used to teach their chefs how to use certain foods. So I'd bring them to the health food store. I'd show them the products. I'd buy the quinoa, I'd buy whatever. And then we'd go back and we'd cook meals so that they would learn how to use the food and it wasn't just a foreign object. And so, yeah, it just evolved <laughs> for me. Well, that's fascinating. So and how did yeah. how did a girl from Dublin actually develop an interest in Asian cooking, Asian medicine, to know that you even wanted to study it? I have no idea. Um, it was really, when I look, you know, it's funny when you look back at your childhood and you start to see things and you think, okay, maybe a little pattern started there. I, I never liked Chinese food, but I was always interested in the art and, you know, dragons and uh, a girl I went to school with was Chinese and they owned uh, a restaurant and I loved the lanterns and I painted a dragon on my, um, 
radiator in my bedroom. Like I, I, when I look back, I saw that, but I was never, it was more that when I started to ask people about trying to study something to do with nutrition, and I didn't want to go back to college, college and do dietitian. And they sort of pushed me towards um, Yosan University and Ma Xing Mi, who was my teacher um, for the nutrition. And, um, and it was kind of, yeah, it was just, I don't know. I just ended up there and never thought I would ever do something like that. Always wanted to work with food, but never thought I'd be a, a doctor of Chinese medicine and be actually treating people on a full-time basis. So. Yeah, I don't know. It was uh, mm -hmm. an interesting. I think because um, seeing Brian, working with Brian Wilson and working there and, <clears throat> you know, seeing how a food and, um, and different things, just pulling it together. Um, I think that had some influence on me as well because I wanted to help people. And I felt that sometimes it was quite easy. Um, that people just needed to make little shifts in their lives and they didn't necessarily have to do big things to make a difference. And um, yeah, so I just ended up, um, I was too, I was in my second year before I decided to continue on. I mean, I was always going to get as far as the nutrition and then leave and just start doing some work with that because I always thought I'd come back to Ireland and I wouldn't need that degree. Um, but then I just realized, oh, my God, I love this. I love the medicine. I love the way they look at the body. I lo love everything about it. And I went on to do a master's then when the master's came in, which was just when I was finishing my first uh, my first three years. So, yeah, I never looked back. Mm. Did you develop any sort of protocol for using food therapy for treating for people recovering from addictions or was it always very individualized to the person you were working with? Always very individualized. Um, <clears throat> and I think that's the greatest gift that Chinese medicine for me always offered was being able to look at a person in front of you and to take into consideration their lifestyle, <clears throat> where they live, the type of work they do, do they cook for themselves? I mean, one of the things, um, you know, is some people don't know how to cook. So telling them to make certain types of food is going to be overwhelming for them because they don't know how to, you know, make a soup or a stew or something. So you have to look at the individual person and see what are they capable of and what are they doing that you can make little adjustments that can support them and as they get comfortable with those adjustments then you can make other adjustments so it's, and it was really about you know with detoxing and stuff like that is supporting you know in the west we have these ideas of detoxing the body and for some people if they're very deficient detoxing is not actually going to be beneficial because they're just going to weaken themselves more so it's about finding a balance with detoxing the stuff that are maybe um you know the heavy sugars and stuff if somebody has an alcohol addiction they tend to crave sugars when they stop um cocaine has an effect on the digestive system do, do you know so you're just looking at the different cigarette smoking, you know, affects the lungs. So you're supporting the lungs and you're, you're making sure they're not eating foods that are creating more phlegm that might be, you know, giving the lungs more problem to breathe. So yeah, very individualized. I, I never had a protocol for any, you know, 
any condition I've ever treated over the years. I'm 30 years in practice and I've never come up with a protocol because I always find when I have the person in front of me, that can go out the window very quickly, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So from the food passion and the food roots, where did the interest in face reading and cosmetic acupuncture develop? Um, well, the cosmetic acupuncture started when I was in college and we had some people coming there, um, models and different people who were getting facial rejuvenation. Um, and, and when I came back to Ireland in 93, there was nobody doing it. So I started teaching some of, of the colleagues I met here how to do it. And then it evolved into me doing workshops and I just, um, it went on. So I became really known for doing that and teaching it. And um, I noticed that when um, you were treating certain parts of the face that sometimes one part would rejuvenate and certain parts wouldn't. And no matter what I did, I couldn't figure out, you know, there was something else behind it. And I took a class. Um, I actually had an institute here in Ireland and we used to do continuing education and bring people over. So I went over to America to invite Lillian because I heard she did this face reading to come and do a workshop in Ireland for us. And it completely changed how I, how I did how I worked completely and I started to realize what she was teaching me was why certain lines wouldn't go away you know if somebody is dealing with emotional stuff and that stuff is still there it's going to mark the face so you know I had somebody who she her whole face rejuvenated but the lines above her lips didn't you know just underneath the nose above the lip and those lines are about over nurturing other people giving all your energy away and not nurturing yourself. I mean, it's okay to nurture other people, but you have to not do it at your expense. And I noticed that this one person that I was always struggling with, she gave her, she gave all her attention to her husband who was quite well known and successful and to her children, but she was an amazing artist who never, who never had the time to, to develop that and, and to become as successful as maybe she could have because she gave all her energy everywhere else. So I realized as long as she was doing that, those lines were never gonna really go away. You were only gonna mask them and then they'd come back. And I started to, yeah, really look at the face and started to see what was going on behind it. And I work with Lillian. I've been working with Lillian since then, um, since 1999. And I have run her, her institute for a um, master face reading program. And um, I specialize in the diagnostic end now. And I don't do the rejuvenation or teach that really anymore, but I do treat people with it. And I always work on, on reading the face as I'm treating the face. It's extraordinary. It is. Yeah, yeah, I had such a blast interviewing both Lillian and C.T. Holman and uh, yeah. getting their insights on facial or face, face reading and facial diagnosis was just, yeah. it blew me away. Oh, it changes everything, you know, because the face doesn't lie. And the face also tells you things before it becomes a permanent problem. So you can see what's potentially going out of balance. And so therefore you can treat it. And the points on the face are extraordinary as well to use those points um, on the face. Yeah, very powerful. And I know yeah. you said you don't develop protocols. 
so what is your system or philosophy behind your cosmetic acupuncture treatments? Do you have a particular style that you've developed or? Yeah, I how, guess so. I guess I, yeah. Um, I, again, I will do a consultation with the person and find out what is going on internally. So if there are pathology going on there. So if there's a yin deficiency or a blood deficiency, then it's, for me, it's really important to also treat the body and, and to tonify and strengthen and do whatever needs. If there's a lot of heat in there and it's drying, then there's gotta be points that cool. So I always would do body points alongside doing the facial points. And the facial points then would be based on again, um, what areas they want to work on. Like if somebody has a specific area or certain lines and that are, they wanna get rid of certain lines, you can go very, um, you can do a lot of little needles, like little intradermal needles or little ear needles all along um, a line, and that softens that line up. Or um, then there's other points that go into the muscles that help lift the muscles. So you're going into certain points that actually, and you're directing it up and out, so you're lifting. So yeah, I would, I would always ask them what it is they want me to focus on. I would always do the general lifting points and then I would focus in on what uh, 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 other area they actually wanted me to, to work on. And I would look at the emotion behind that as well. And I would work on that emotion as well. Okay. And what style of needles are you using? Inter like hand needles, very small ones? I or? use all types all needles, so, okay all needles i have long ones and tiny <laughs> little ones and yeah no i use all different types um i um i have little special intradermal ones that are not in plaster that you get a little tweezer and you stick in and mm -hmm. um, i have some um of the really small i, I a lot of times i use the um for around the eye area, like the really fine places that you have to be careful not to bruise and stuff, I would use the sarin needles, like the B, the little blue ones or the red ones, because they're very fine. And generally, then I use just ear needles, um, like 13 gauge, you know, the, 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 and I just use them on the face a lot. If I'm threading, I might use a one sun. Um, yeah, and the ones that I usually use a 22 or a 25 gauge. Yeah. Okay. What kind of results are you getting? Well, yeah, I've gotten good results. <laughs> so you get good results if you can get people, you know, early. Um, you know, when particularly with women, um, once gone into menopause and they're postmenopausal, there, there's more of a deficiency there a lot. So sometimes that can be a little bit harder to make changes. So I always love to get people before that, if I can. Uh, and then it's about just maintaining, you know, maintaining somebody's um, lifting, you know, so once a month or once every three months, you know, depending on the age and depending on the quality of their skin, um, I would work on that. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. When you find there are emotional challenges that are preventing certain areas from recovering their youth, so to speak, what sort of intervention or work do you then do with the individuals? Do you mm. actually go into the emotional work to try to help them heal that? 
Um, yeah, well, first of all, I would recognize where the emotion is. So for instance, with grief, um, we see markings on the, the cheek area coming from the eyes and the deeper it goes into the cheek and the further back, the deeper the grief is. And um, so there's certain points that I would use, like if it was a very recent grief, it would be more superficial and closer, maybe not so long. I maybe would use long seven alongside the facial points because for me long seven helps with more recent grief but when i see old grief there and and i feel it's you know part of weighing down the person i would use long three because for me it connects very deeply with the po and the po is the spirit of the lungs um, and so i would try to connect with that i use um I've always been fascinated with Sun Si Miao, and that's why you know my book came about because of Yang Shang, but also because of his ghost points and the whole concept of demons and ghosts and spirits. I mean, coming from Ireland, I grew up with them. And but also about our own inner demons and our own inner emotions. And for me, you know, I see sometimes when, when we rejuvenate that actually what we're doing is re we're releasing trapped jing. So traumas and emotions and different things, we don't necessarily lose our jing, but it gets stuck, you know? And then when we can let go of that, like you look at somebody who falls in love, they look 10 years younger. What have they done? They've opened their heart and they feel joy. And suddenly, where did all this jing come from? It was always there. It just was somewhere not being used. This is how I, I, I think of it. And so when I help move those emotions and I, and I help, you know, with certain points and I use the ghost points, but the ones on the face I have, I work with, and that helps for me, it helps move emotions and unblock things. So it helps open the third eye, helps people with a bit of creativity to see things from a different perspective, because we get stuck in our in our emotions and we get stuck in our way of life and sometimes we don't see other other potentials other ways yeah and are you employing any other strategies when helping people with their emotional healing uh, for example are you just recognizing the grief and picking points to help it come out or are you discussing this with your patients and having a more proactive role in helping them maybe talk through it or work through it or suggesting other things that they can do? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I, I think looking at the whole, the whole person, you have to look at the whole picture. And so I would ask, you know, I would mention maybe there is this line here and this is what we would see behind it and, you know, about the grief and if they want to talk about it or, um, or just a lot of people feel they've let go of stuff, like somebody close to them passes away and they feel like they've dealt with it, but the body's still holding on to it. So I talk to them about that and I talk about, um, you know, um, by doing the points, it'll lift it off the body, but, you know, it won't make you go back into that space. And sometimes people need, they haven't grieved. And so therefore, when you bring up the conversation, they might allow themselves to, to recognize the fact that they still have um, something to grieve. And, and, and there's no time frame and there's no finality with any of this but I think when we have an understanding 
And the more knowledge we have, then the easier it is for us to move forward in our lives and make changes. And my belief is, and I, I always work on this kind of emotional spirit level. I, I, I always work with the spirit. I, I just, I'm so connected to it when a person comes in, I can see in their eyes, I can see what's going on. And so for me, um, it's in a very important part of treating them. And so I, I want them to, I believe that because they're in my clinic, they're ready for something that, you know, I have to offer energetically that they're here because they, I have something, you know, and, and they can process whatever it is. So I trust myself a little more to say things and, and talk to them. And then I talk to them about the things they can do to help themselves. It could be meditation. It could be just getting out and having more fun and laughing more, you know, and I always encourage the foods that also, you know, will support their element and what they need to do, you know? Yeah, I suppose I, it's funny because I never thought about how I put it all together, 30 years doing it all and I have bits coming from everywhere and you learn from one person and something resonates with some and you kind of start integrating it and into your practice. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> and do you also use any sort of herbs for the face? I do, I okay. do. Yeah. Um, well, on the face, is that what you mean? Or I, in, Well, yes. In the, no, on the face, I, do you I, use any sort of topical herbal applications? Um, only when I'm treating um, dermatology, uh, okay. dermatological kinds of conditions, which I do a lot of. Um, I would make some creams for topical mm -hmm. with the herbs, but I use herbs. I have a little pharmacy just behind me in my little room and I have all the raw herbs. And yeah, if um, with facial rejuvenation, sometimes people want to just come in for the, the acupuncture and they don't really want to do the herbs like, but if somebody's open to it, um, I would definitely make them herbs. And again, it would be customized for what, what is their uh, constitution? What is their pathology and what needs to be strengthened or reduced or whatever. And I would do my, my, my usual diagnosis and then prescribe for stress and stuff like that. I would always recommend certain herbs like Sherry I want modified is, <laughs> is a great one, you know? Yeah. for stress and yeah mm -hmm. you mentioned the deep connection to spirit and can you elaborate on what your kind of interpretation on spirit and what your connection is and if you do anything in particular to enhance that connection or to reinforce that connection in myself or in my patients <laughs> either one but i was particularly <laughs> thinking about you um yeah i um i i don't know um i was always a very aware when i was growing up of things and i didn't quite understand what i was feeling or sensing but i always had a sense of um something was wrong. Like I'd always pick up things. If I met somebody, I'd instantly know something about them, but I'd have to wait till I got to know them to then to, for it to be proven that it was there. And I started to, I suppose with my own experience, I had my own experiences in life that led me towards this, I suppose, because um, one of the things actually working with Lillian, when I first met Lillian and she did a reading on me, 
she um, she was looking at my eyes, my spirit. She offered, asked permission to go in and have, you know, engage. And I said, okay. And she said, you, you keep going. And she said, you need to come back. And I said, oh yeah, really? And she goes, yeah, yeah, no, you keep going, you come back. And I thought she was just telling me this, but she was actually saying, come back. And I realized that I was observing more than participating and that I had done that a lot through my life where I'd be slightly back observing, but she was able to see that in my, in my eyes. She was able to engage with my spirit and see that. And as soon as I became conscious of that, and I started to notice when I was doing that, I started to notice it in other people as well. And I started to notice my patients when they come in and their eyes are jumping all over the place and they can't look at you straight. And you know, their, um, their conversation is jumping all over the place. I realized, okay, their spirit is scattered. So if I have anything to tell them, I would always write it down for those patients because they won't remember it because they're jumping all over the place. But if they have a piece of paper saying, do this, this, and this, they'll remember what they're meant to do. So yeah, it just all evolved. And then I, I'm, I'm into meditation and I'm really fascinated with quantum physics and the field. And, and, and so I, yeah, I guess I, you know, I don't know if you know of Joe Dispensia. Have you oh, ever course. heard of? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd be a big fan of his and yeah. I, I've been to see him and done one of his uh, progressive workshops and um, I practiced that. Um, yeah, I, I, I meditate and I work on creating my own reality and tapping into the possibility. I, I've always had a sense that we, are going along on our path and sometimes we're slightly off it and we just need to realign ourselves so slightly and we're back on it again and sometimes when we get that alignment there is a knowing and a and a sense of something that is um oh it just it's hard to even explain but you know everything is just right there's, there's a moment and I've only experienced that once, but it was so profound. Um, I've, I've always wanted to get back to that, um, <laughs> but I, I have experienced it where I understood everything and, and everything was lined up. Yeah. So it I have a lot of trust in the universe. Yeah. Get it, getting back to that is only a small little adjustment away, Deirdre. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Just turn left not. or right just a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to learn more about looking in the eyes to read the spirit or to learn more about the spirit. What are you looking into, looking for, looking at? Okay. So when, have you ever seen a baby and you look in a baby's eyes and they're just, it's clear and they're direct. There course, is a yes. direct, okay, that's spirit being totally present. And when we go through life, our spirit has to deal with lots of things. I mean, I, I you know, we, we, we have traumas that our spirit leaves in order not to be present. You know, you see that with people who have had really severe abuse um, inflicted on them. There's protection they will leave. mechanism. Yeah. Exactly. And so when you look in somebody's eyes, you can see their spirit looking back. I can anyway. I can also see 
when there is an, something else looking back at me. So I've actually, I, I don't know what you believe in or what any of your uh, listeners believe in, but I do believe in entities and I do believe sometimes there is possession and we get possessed and it can be momentarily. And for sometimes it can be a little more and it warps and changes how we view the world and how we see things and how we do things. And so I can see that in somebody. Um, I can see that in their eyes. Um, I can also see sometimes when somebody comes in, they're very there, they seem engaging and they're there, but if you really look at their eyes, they're way back. So they're not really participating. When you talk to somebody about their themselves or you know when I'm working with somebody in the clinic here and I see a line on the face and I'm 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 asking them about their creativity say um, I see that it's not uh, strong but they have potential that are they using it I watch the eyes I watch the spirit as I talk to them and and I've learned this from Lillian and um, and what you can see is when some you hit something the spirit arrives right back or you hit something and it disappears. So you know you've, you've, you've connected to something. So you pull more, you ask more questions around that to pull that back, to bring that spirit back and see why does it leave and when does it leave? Or if you hit something that's really special then um, and the, the person's spirit is just there, then you know you've connected something and that's important. So asking people what they like to do, you know, and they're going, well, I like to garden or I like to read. And, and then they say something like, I like to take photographs. And suddenly there's a, a little flash in their eyes. You go, OK, the spirit came alive there. There's something there in this, you know, so you go a little further with it. And um, yeah. It's, and are yeah. you able to do this just from a casual observation of the eyes or are you like right up in their face staring in their eyes while you're asking questions no I, i'm about um three feet away four okay. feet away from where my where my patients would sit um i can see certain things in a photograph but mm -hmm. it's a still so it's a caption and um, so i get um i can see you know some emotions behind there you know sometimes you can see um, terror or fear or um, pleading or something. So you can capture a, a, a moment of capturing the spirit by taking a photograph. You can also see when something else is looking back at you from a photograph. Um, it's hard to do it out in public because people always think I'm looking at them all the time, but <laughs> you'd have to be staring at somebody all the time. And I, I kind of don't do that so much with my friends and in public because it's kind of nobody will invite me for dinner if I did so and you spoke of this lack of engagement someone who won't make eye contact or their eyes are darting all around can you talk a bit more about what that indicates and what I, I I often notice it, especially with the number of guests that I interview. And I guess, does that indicate any sort of pathology? Are there any measures that in general someone can take to maybe realign yeah. that or reinforce that engagement? Yeah, because, you know, when you think about it in Chinese medicine, you know, um, the heart is where the Shen, the spirit resides. 
and we need heart blood in order for it to have an anchor. And so sometimes when um, we have too much heat agitating the heart, you know, the liver stress um, generates heat, the heat rises, it can go through the heart, it can create heat in the heart. And that, that gives no place for, that pushes the spirit out. It can't anchor itself in a nice cool, blood in in the heart so heart pathology a lot you you will see things like heat and blood deficiency yin deficiency liver blood also um, and liver fire a lot of times and when you see like you see it a lot with somebody who would have that hyperactivity um, with, you know, high adrenaline, cortisol being uh, overstimulated all the time, and you, mania, you know, would go into, that would be a severe version of it, but you would see somebody would have lines coming, you know, we call these laugh lines at the corner of our eyes, but if they go right up over the very top of somebody's eyebrow, then it's a sign of hypertension. And that can be either a, a liver or heart pathology causing high blood pressure or, and, or mania. And then you're going to see the shen scattered because, you know, fire and wind makes things move and scatter. So the shen can't ground itself. So that's, yeah, most common one I see for that. Okay. And I've also had the experience with certain people. I, I appreciate eye contact. I try to make eye contact, but there are certain people that when I am in the presence of or engaging with, it's harder for me to maintain eye contact with them. Yeah. Is that, am I just imagining that or is there something to that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes, um, well, so first of all, when we're thinking and we're trying to recall information, sometimes we might move our eyes away. So we're not engaging. So we're thinking. So people sometimes go back a little bit or look up. Or, um, um, and also sometimes it's hard to keep contact with somebody who's not keeping contact with you. So, you know, it's easier if we're engaging and you're, we're both making contact. But if if I'm not, if I wasn't looking at you or moving around and making eye contact, it would be very uncomfortable for you to be trying to track my, my spirit, my things. So I think there's, um, it can be just, yeah, it can be that. Okay. Yeah. And then with patients who are lacking that engagement, do you talk to them about that and monitor progress, so to speak, by their ability to engage down the road as, as you do? treatments with them <clears throat> yeah and um obviously some patients it's hard to talk to them about this because they don't have a sense of spirit um particularly in ireland you have either very religious people or they don't believe in anything because of the way we were brought up here but um and so i'm cautious how i approach this but um yeah eventually after one or two treatments i will make some connection with that with them and often you know i they come back and i can see they're more grounded they're more present they're more engaging um and they know that themselves they i, I say it to them you're much more present you're much more here now and they go yeah no i really feel that so they once they're aware of it they become more aware of when they are present and when they're not some people are very far gone you know, and it takes a bit of time 
like I wouldn't have a conversation with everybody on their first visit. A lot of information for me comes on the first visit. And if the person I feel is open to it by the few things I say, I'll go a little further with it. But sometimes um, it doesn't come up. Um, it, I need to wait until they've gained their, my confidence, you know, that they... I've gained, they, they've, I've gained their confidence and, right. you know, that they're comfortable and that they come back, you know, because, you know, they won't come back if they're not comfortable. And then I, I'll see how far they can go. Okay. Sometimes I will actually just do certain points um, on the face in order to connect with their spirit or ground their spirit without saying anything to them and then a lot of times there's in it, sometimes it's very interesting reactions people have mm -hmm. you know because they connect with it and are you looking beyond the eyes to determine spirit are you looking at auric fields any complexion anything else or are the eyes really for you the portal to the Shen and the spirit? It's the portal for me, but I do look at other aspects. I look at, um, I'm, I'm not able to see auras, um, so I don't see, but I can see somebody's third eye. So I can see if somebody's third eye is, is open or closed. Um, I can, I'm more can sense and feel things. So it's almost like I have some connect, I can I can connect to people on a certain level, not that they know I'm being, but I feel things. Uh, um, uh, I just know things and then I ask questions to clarify that what I think I know or what I felt I know is, is true, if that makes sense. And, mm -hmm. and I suppose over the years of doing that and, and trusting that it's become stronger. Okay. I've never been asked all these questions before. <laughs> I sound like, like a bit out there, don't I? Sorry, I just like to get in there. So you, you're, you're, you're very easy to talk to. So I'm enjoying the questions that good, are good. enjoying the answers <laughs> and the opportunities to ask questions. Speaking of talking about things and questions, you said earlier that in your youth, you just had these sensations of spirit or this mm -hmm. awareness mm -hmm. did you have anyone to assimilate that process or those experiences with anyone you could talk to about it or did it just seem like something's wrong with me and i've got to keep this away mm. from everyone yeah like okay i'm gonna sound really crazy now um i had a few <laughs> weird experiences when i was younger where i actually moved around the house um not in my body um when I was meant to be sleeping <laughs> mm -hmm. and finding myself standing at the side of the bed. So, you know, like it was almost like a dream, but standing at the side of the bed and looking at myself and then being very aware that it was, I was, that body was empty and I needed to get back. And I had a few of those. And I remember saying it to somebody and there was some, that I don't remember his name. I was about 17. There was some famous guy who'd written a book about astral travel and he was doing some sort of workshop here in Ireland. And this person I had said it to said, oh, you should meet this person and they'll help you develop this because obviously you have something. And to be honest, it freaked me out and I didn't do anything about it. And I tried to shut off this. It was very exhausting knowing things like I had a friend who lived down the road for me growing up and every time I went into the house, it, it, there was something not right, but I couldn't tell you what it was. And then later on, I found, you know, that it was not a happy home 
do you know what I mean? I, I remember having these meltdowns about things I would imagine. And it was only later, um, like where I'd freak out, like at seven years old. And it was only later in my life that I realized that when some big catastrophe in the world somewhere else happened, like a tsunami or a plane crash, somehow it threw me off. And I would have these really weird experiences that day, even not knowing that this had happened, but only discovering it later by listening to the news or, and I started to notice that it, it, it always seems to happen. I always feel something. So I don't know, I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I still don't. And I, I don't know about going, <laughs> going there with it. I just keep it very much to my practice of trying to make a connection with somebody so that I can help them make a connection with themselves if that's what they need or help them get better or feel better or you know it just become became part of my practice it's not all of us but yeah. it, it's really hard. I, I'm fascinated but you're asking so me such crazy <laughs> questions <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by the symmetry to a conversation I just had yesterday in an interview with Taoist scholar Stuart Alvey Olson and he shared these very similar out-of-body experiences where he was in bed and he was actually looking, looking at his body when he was younger. Mm -hmm. And just like you just said, someone actually recommended that he reads, uh, read some books on Tibetan astral experiences. And it helped him to gain a bit of an awareness or an understanding of it. So he didn't feel like he was just entirely out there on okay. his own doing crazy things. Do you have? Yeah, but I grew, I grew up in Ireland, you know, and it was a yep. very, very Catholic country. And I went to a, a nun school from the age of five until I was 16 or 17. And, you know, the, everything in this country was was run by the church and the priests yeah. and the whole thing. So there was that was, you know, when you grow up in that environment and you talk like that, you're crazy, you know. Yeah. So I very quickly shut it down because it frightened me, but also, you know, my my abilities have always frightened me because I didn't understand them. They don't do that anymore. But yeah, right. I think it was my culture that stopped me, you know. Do you have any suggestions for parents who maybe are seeing some of these abilities in their children? Because it sounds it sounds like your experience was somewhat traumatic to have these experiences mm. and not have anyone to talk to them about and just stifle them. So I'm yes. just wondering, are we culturally, are we literally stifling? I think we are the spiritual yeah. connection that our little ones have. Cause as you said, they come into this world with that deep, profound connection. And then yeah. it seems like we then spend yeah, a lifetime washing that away. And society does that. They go into school, they're being conformed, you know. Um, they're, like, by the time, like, by the, t I think the first three to four years of a child's life, or even when up till seven years old, you know, they see and they hear and they know things, you know. And I think the thing is not to tell them that it's their imagination, is to, like, I, my niece, when she was little, 
and we were coming out of uh, um, uh, the, her holiday home her parents have and I was with her and she just stopped as she was talking and was staring over at the house next door and there was nobody there like I didn't see anybody there anyway and so I kind of and I, I asked her I said you know what are you looking at she says oh I'm just looking at this guy over there and I said oh what's he doing she goes nothing and gets in the car <laughs> but it's like I no doubt she saw somebody there you know yeah. but I didn't say there's nobody there. I just went, oh, what's he doing? And I think that, you know, I, I, I think society, you know, you go into school, you're, you're we're, it's really hard. It's really it hard to, to instill that confidence in children to, to other children are very cruel. Kids are very cruel. They'll make fun. I remember I had a little, we had three little trees, uh, fruit trees at the end of our garden. And I had a little fairy that I used to talk to up till I was about, I think 12, 11, 12 years old. And every day after school, I'd do my homework. I wouldn't do my homework, but anyway, I'd eat my dinner and I'd run down <laughs> to the garden and I'd spend hours. And when we'd go for walks in the woods, I'd be telling my parents and whoever was listening, this is where they have their feasts and see these, you know, bits of the tree, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I had this whole fantasy going on. But I remember by the time I was 11 years old, I had to say goodbye. And I consciously went there to my, my fairy and said, you know, we have to say goodbye because I knew I couldn't continue that relationship in school. And, mm. and that people were going to make fun of me. And it was interesting. I was able to let it go, you know, let her yeah. go. I just yeah. interviewed herbalist Guido Masse, and he was talking about the impact of fairy tales in his life. He grew up in the Italian Alps, and he said every tree had a fairy spirit. Yeah. And it was not unusual for adults to tell the stories of the fairy spirits yeah. of every tree. So it was just something that he grew up with it was part of his yeah. life and he is then able to pass that on to his child as well so it's there's there's got to be something to it right it's well I have to say my dad was amazing because we used to go down to the west of Ireland and we used to get up at five o'clock in the in the morning to go and pick these giant mushrooms that would be flat mushrooms that you would fill the whole firing pan and they'd only come up when the sun was rising and you'd have these fairy circles which were circles of little mushrooms or circles that you wouldn't see but if you walked through the circle you would end up going around in circles until you realized you were going around in circles and that could be <laughs> 20 minutes a half an hour but my dad would had told me about this and one day we went off and we went on the same path that we but we probably went off the path we normally did and we, we, I, after about 20 minutes, I remember saying to dad, I think we've passed this rock before. So once you become conscious of it, you apparently break the spell. And my dad and me walked back around and we found the circle of the mushrooms. And dad said, oh yeah, you went through the mushrooms. But also over here, we have these, um, if you're going to build a house, you want to make sure that you're not in the way of the fairies. And um, this is very, because we're full of this culture here, even though, you know, the church has always tried to, you know, push it away. Yes. It's very part of our culture. But you would put a little two pieces of woods in a cross shape and you would put it on the boundaries of your where you're going to build a house. And if you come back the next day and one of them's knocked down, it means it's crossing a ferry path. So you have to move it again. <laughs> and so you keep moving it until you find that it's OK. 
and there was a house up the up the mountains near where I used to live years ago, and um, it everybody said the house was haunted. So anybody that lived there, you know, either became an alcoholic or committed suicide or went mad or the relationship, like it was just considered a haunted house. And the local priest and they apparently built this on a ferry pathway, so they didn't heed. So the local priest decided to go and live in the house to show the whole villagers that this wasn't true. And he ended up being an alcoholic oh, no. <laughs> and losing his marriage. But it's kind of, there's all of these stories here about, you know, the fairies and the goblins and, mm -hmm. you know, all of this thing. And, you know, my father came from the West of Ireland, where it's very much part of the culture there. You know, people believe in it, even though then they have the church believing in the church. So there's a conflict always, I think. Yes. You know? Did you have any sort of healing or grieving process from your early years where you had this connection and then around 12, you had to say goodbye to your fairy friend? And then it seems like at some point in life, you became reconnected in a sense to the spirit. Yeah, no, I never had a grieving about it. I, I've always been one of these person, people that just, you know, I go with it. You know, whatever's happening, this is what's happening and we go with it. I suppose I didn't realize that I had disconnected from my spirit until, um, until I started to really, I suppose it was a couple of years before I started studying Chinese medicine. You know, I kind of... Um, met some people that were very tuned in in California and very aware and very connected. And they talked in a way that in, you know, in Ireland, we would think they're all crazy over there <laughs> in America. And suddenly I was amongst the people and realized mm -hmm. what they were saying. Like for once I was finally able to actually admit that, you know, I felt this way or I know these things, or I've always thought this was true. So kind of just being in California in the early nineties or the mid eighties, actually it was kind of, yeah, exposed me to a different way of looking at things and, and, and self-reflective because, you know, we don't, we, we were not brought up with that in Ireland, you know, we were not brought up with therapy. I mean, even to this day, you know, and therapy is a big thing. People still have a stigma about it. People don't admit they're depressed. It's, there's a stigma behind it. You should go and pray about it and you'll be okay. And so people have never been encouraged to connect with that here. And so, um, and still, you can still feel it a little bit, you know? Some yeah. people think, uh, yeah. So for me, it was definitely going to to California and um, meeting some amazing people, and then studying Chinese medicine, and that's when I really learned about the spirit and you know the Shan and the importance right. of it. Yeah. What's the culture of Chinese medicine like in Dublin and Ireland, and how does it compare from when you first came back in the early '90s to today, nearly 30 years later? Um, yeah, politically, it hasn't changed much at all. But um, when I came back, I was one of five herbalists in the whole country, Chinese herbalists, and only okay. two of them weren't practicing. Um, so I was a real novelty when I first came back. Uh, acupuncture had been in Ireland a while. 
um, but it hadn't, um, it was very small and hadn't developed much. Now there's an awful lot of acupuncturists and there are more and more herbalists coming up and um, people are starting to, like complementary medicine and Chinese medicine is becoming more mainstream here now. And when I first came back, most people didn't know what acupuncture was or Chinese medicine or anything like that. Um, but now everybody knows somebody who's had acupuncture is going for acupuncture. So it's very much more um, developed and grown. And there's some amazing practitioners here. It's a very different educational system. Like I went full, you know, full time, you're doing all of the modalities, you're doing the herbal medicine, the twina, the nutrition, the acupuncture, where here you study acupuncture. And then if you want to go on and study any of the other modalities, you can do that separately. So some people do that and some people don't. There's not a big, um, there's a lot of acupuncturists, but there's not um, people who do it full time as a career. It's, it's, I think it's still quite small compared to the percentage of people who've studied it. Okay. You know, people still, they kind of do it. There's a lot of part-time practitioners right? and they have their other jobs. And yeah, it's hard to make right. a living, I suppose. Yeah. Let's switch, uh, shift gears a little bit. I want to hear about your book, Nourishing Life, The Yangsheng Way. Okay. Please do tell about the book itself. And I also want to hear about the inspiration for it in the process of creating it um yeah well it was um i think it came from my fascination with uh san Miao and i always liked um the whole idea of um preventative medicine and also working with people um supporting their uh my whole ethos in my clinic is to not overwhelm an already overwhelmed person. So by the time they've come in, they, they've got some condition going on. They're overwhelmed by, you know, the medication or their doctors or the blood tests or what they, you know, and then, you know, I start telling them to make these big changes in their life and I overwhelm them again. So I'm always very conscious of that, particularly with diet. And um, the book, I was never the book came by default. I was asked, I was told, I had the idea of Yang Shang and wouldn't it be great to write a book that for as, a, and we wanted to do it to my patients, write the book for my patients to kind of explain to them about, you know, the five elements and, you know, how Chinese medicines views health and, you know, look at the things in their environment that are uh, contributing to their health. Like one of the things, you know, with you know, cancers and estrogen driven cancers and other, you know, hormone imbalances, you know, it's not just about doing something and throwing your body out of balance. We're having things in our environments that are compounding that are causing that, like the makeup we wear or body lotions, you know, all of them have estrogen or, or hormone disruptors, uh, chemicals in them to protect them from going mold or different things. So I kind of wanted to kind of get people to sort of see that it's not just about what you eat it's not just about um meditating or not meditating or exercising and that not everybody needs the same level of exercise not everybody should be doing the same thing as a matter of fact not everybody should be wearing the same makeup or following the same trends because we're not the same people like you know 
we shouldn't all be, you know, I don't like horror movies. Some people love them. You know, we're very different. And in when we go a little further with that, it's about acceptance and it's about accepting everybody and their culture, their their way of life, how they do things. And that's a very hard thing to do when we move beyond that into just our own little world. It's tolerance, having tolerance and um, and respect. And that's, you know, it's about virtues and um, and our values. And so the book kind of evolved because Yangshang is a big subject, you know, and it's very much about taking the individual person and going, um, you know, what it is do you need? And what can I do to help you? And what can you do to help yourself? Like one of the things I noticed, and, and I suppose the nutritional end of it is the big thing for me. And um, because I started in the area of nutrition and then in my practice, I did a lot of herbal and I did a lot of acupuncture and I kind of let the, the nutritional end of it sort of slide a little bit because I was focusing on all those. And I realized you can't do that. You have to take the whole picture. And what I found is a lot of people would come in and the minute I'd mentioned diet, they were like tense and like, oh God, now she's going to tell me to give all these things up. And I just say, I'm, I'm not going to tell you to give up anything. I'm going to educate you in the foods you eat. So you know that if you're going to make a choice, what choice would be better? You make the choice or not. So I get them to do an inventory of all their foods. So I see what kinds of foods they eat. Do they cook their own meals? Do they buy ready-made cooks? Are they cooking for themselves or a family? You know what I mean? I get all this information. So then I can make suggestions that actually are feasible and doable for them. And little changes, whatever changes they need, need to be long-term changes. It's not just about while I'm sick. And that's another thing I think, which is prompted me with the book is that, you know, a lot of my patients would come in, particularly with cancer and serious illnesses, and they would change their whole life. They'd be meditating, they'd be walking, they'd be eating all this healthy food, they'd be doing all these things. And as soon as they were given the all clear, they gradually go back to what they were doing before. And, and that's, that's no good because what you were doing before got you to where you were that, you know, to what you were, that what pathology you ended up having. So I try to, um, I try to get people to make the changes that they can at first and that they're enjoying their food and their life and it's not a stress and that the lifestyle changes they make are doable so that they can be long-term sustainable changes as opposed to quick, short changes that actually sometimes you need to do certain things depending on what you're dealing with, but long-term is the big picture. It's preventing, you know, it's changed, yeah. So so the book just, uh, it, it just, I didn't know how it was gonna be when I started writing it. And then when I started writing it, I thought, oh, I better put something about this in. And, oh, maybe I should explain this. And it just got bigger and bigger. And <laughs> a lot of research went into it to back everything I was saying. The publishing company wanted me to, every word I said, I had to back it up. <laughs> Is the audience, you mentioned you kind of wanted to write the book for your patients, is the audience more the layman or the patient or is our practitioners yeah, no. also going to benefit? The publishing company Singing Dragon wanted me to do it for practitioners. Okay. So I, so I had already 
started it and um, they said they would like me to gear it towards the practitioners. So I wrote it in a particular way that would benefit both. So I wrote it as in a way that if I was starting off in the clinic and I had somebody come to me with a certain condition, what would be the things I would need to know about it? Because we use different modalities all the time. We're looking at food, we're looking at lifestyle and exercise, we're looking at different things. So that it would all be sort of in one place so they could, you know, look at it. And then I, and and so the two chapters on health and, con, and conditions, you know, certain conditions, you could still use it because it's food if you're a layperson. Do, do you know what I mean? I still, yeah. so it, I, I wrote it so it would benefit both. And actually a lot of my patients and a lot of people I know um, who are not practitioners uh, really enjoy it. They feel they get a lot of information that's valuable. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> what was the writing process and experience like for you? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> It was one of the worst experiences. (laughs) Oh, I have to admit it. It was really tough. I'm completely dyslexic. Oh, no. I can't spell. (laughs) I can't spell to save my my life. I also, you know, um, I say things sometimes and I hear myself say one thing and and another thing comes out. Like, it's just this. So it's always held me back and it's always made me insecure. So writing the book was putting myself out there because um, it didn't come naturally for me at all. And so I had things written all over the place, but nothing was a flow because that's how my brain works. I get a bit of this and a bit of this and I pull it in and I create this. And so it was painful. Um, It took me a long time to get into a rhythm with it. And it was interesting. um, my, My dad passed away in the middle of it and that really threw me. And um, but it seemed that after that, he was an amazing writer, my father, he was very talented. And it seemed that after that, an ease into writing came. I used to go to the library three days a week and I'd sit there regardless if I was able to write or not. And I would have all these books everywhere if I wanted to get references. And all the students who were doing their final exams in school um, would all be there studying away. So it was a lovely energy. I really enjoyed that. And I used to just go there and just write and it just became easier near the end. But I had to get um, uh, um, somebody I know, a friend of mine, who's who's really organized to to take all my my theoretically uh, chapters. And she had to go through it all because things were like I'd written the same thing in in a different chapter and it was all over the place. So it it took a bit of time. I didn't enjoy the process at first. Okay. Um, I enjoyed it near the end. Um, Yeah, it was tough. What do you attribute, you mentioned your dad died and then there was greater ease in writing after that. Were you distracted during the the late days of his life or do you, I'm just going to put it out there since we've talked about spirit, or do you feel like <laughs> the spirit of your father and his writing came into you? It, it, there's a couple of things. Yes, um, before my my dad passed away, I was caring with with my my siblings. We were looking after my parents, so it was a lot of stuff around that. So that took up a lot of time. And um, and yes, um, I do believe that I have inherited. I've 
I've always been told I am very um, creative like my dad and that I, I, I know we're very similar. And um, I do feel that he maybe I was there uh, trying to resuscitate him. So I was there when he died. And um, I feel he gave me some gifts after that. And some different people came out of the woodwork to sort of say to me, your father has given you some gift or, you know, you've inherited something from your father. So there was um, definitely I felt um, yeah, I felt uh, that there was something in that, uh, that he gave me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I also, um, interesting enough, I had, um, because of the stress of it all and because of my insecurity about my ability to write, I can talk, I can express myself verbally, but <clears throat> I'm very, it's very difficult for me to write something and express myself. I just I, I try, but I can't. Um, I did um, a therapy in America. Lillian actually organized it for me, which was, um, it's some sort of, um, I, oh, it, it's again abbreviated, so I can't remember because dyslexic. Rap, rapid eye movement work? Is that yeah, what, yeah, so okay. they took me back, actually. I went and did this because I was freaking out about the book and I only had another two months and I had to give it in and it was a mess and I was a mess and Lillian could see I was a mess and so she <laughs> organized this story but it was really interesting <clears throat> it brought me right back to when I was in school when anytime I used to I was very inquisitive so I was very curious and all my questions were wanting to gather more information but the nuns felt it a threat so anytime I brought up something that wasn't within their realm of teaching they would punish me for it um so they would um i remember when i was five years old I, me and a little boy were playing and suddenly we were in the bathroom and they were shoving a bar of soap down my mouth because oh. i said something and Awful. i didn't i can't remember what i said but i learned very quickly that when i spoke my truth i got punished for it so there was all of that holding me back and that after that session um like everything changed That's like it amazing. was extraordinary i stopped um I, it was a bit of post-traumatic stress from my dad that went away and then there was a a, a sense of a, a purpose and a confidence that came into me it, it i'm still processing that but um i've i've forgiven that experience and my experience in school um really held me back and um it was, I, I can't remember one enjoyable thing about all those years in school. Um, but, um, but my spirit is very strong and I survived it. And I came out still being acquisitive, still being, they didn't knock me. You know what I mean? They held me back a bit, but you know, so that gave me confidence. Um, but yeah, so it was a combination of things. I mean, yeah. 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 Well, I have to tell you, you gave me chills with the story about your father. Uh, it's such a touching story. And yeah. just for anyone also who's curious about what therapy you're talking about, it's EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Thank you. <laughs> and I've personally not done it, but I've had so many people talk highly of it. Yeah. I, I'm so bad with abbreviations. I used to be... Um, chair of a herbal register here and i used to be in a european organization and i, I had to stop because all the <laughs> organizations had these abbreviations of it and i couldn't like it was just like forget it i can't do this 
I did that, not expect this interview to go this way. <laughs> as I told you before we started, we'll go wherever it flows to. So that, <laughs> thank you for humoring me and providing such amazing insights. And thanks for that explanation of the book process and love it or hate it. It's definitely a journey. And yeah. I'm sure there were some have been some very positive aspects of that as well and i'm glad that the world now gets to benefit from the hard work that you put into it oh i'm so proud of myself for doing it it's a great yeah. achievement it's wonderful i'm delighted now yeah. yeah that's great so what are you working on now another book i'm sure <laughs> you and lillian Lillian's always trying to get me to do another one she wants me to do one on the spirits spirit points and you know well yeah, she's working i don't she- know She's been working on me too to do one. So <laughs> she does. It's like that tiny <laughs> torture, just a little pushed here all the time. But, but she's so say, lovely. It's just hard right. to say no. <laughs> I know, and I just love working with her. And she's my be- one of my best friends. Herself and Kelly, the three of us, we we work with her. You know, we all work together, and it's yeah, she's great. She's she really, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, you spoke of your early teacher, Mao Xing Ni, for nutrition, and of course, Lillian for face reading. Have you had any other great inspirations during your journey? Um, well, I have to say, um, my, um, my, my acupuncture teacher in, in college, um, when I was studying in Yosan, Jim Scoyne, um, was the first person that I ever would say would have been a mentor. He was just amazing. And um, um, he's in Switzerland, I think. Uh, he works there. He's been there for years. Jim Scoyne, he um, always loved working with animals as well. He's hmm. a really amazing acupuncturist. He didn't do herbal medicine. Um, I know he studied it, but he never did it. But he was great. And yeah, I don't know. I've never... Um, Lillian's really been the first person that I've ever resonated with and really because I suppose the level she works on, you know, she works on a very deep level and she brings that out and she makes it safe to to be that, to be yourself. And yeah, that's really been the yeah. Yeah, the main person. And then Maoshing and Dashing Me were my teachers. They owned Yosan or they still own Yosan. And okay. They were great. Yeah, they they were my first introduction and I loved it. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun for me. Thank you for <laughs> doing this. Oh, you're for welcome. To- tolerating all of my questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said to me that other people you've talked to have also talked about some of this stuff because I start to talk it and then I think, okay, he's going to think I'm crazy if I still go with this spirit thing. So I, it's nice to hear that other people saw and felt things growing up. And- I kind of pry into the crazy areas because I i don't consider them to be crazy at all. Yeah. I, yeah. So it's yeah. part of my, it's the opportunity I get. I know this isn't a <laughs> podcast for me, but I enjoy doing it. So I need to have fun while doing it. Exactly. <laughs> well, again, thank you for all of your insights thank you for your contributions your book and i hope to get to continue discussing with you and maybe get to meet you someday that would be great i'd like that yeah thank you todd you're welcome all the best (laughs)
All the best. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Deirdre Courtney. For more about Deirdre and her clinical work, please visit DeirdreCourtney.com. That is D-E-I-R-D-R-E-C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y.com. Her book, Nourishing Life, The Yangsheng Way, is available through Singing Dragon and major booksellers. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Deirdre's colleague at the Lotus Institute and episode 25 guest, C.T. Holman, will soon be releasing at PRC Online his two applied facial diagnosis courses, one for the public and one for acupuncturists. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, let the eyes be your portal into spirit and connection.